0: Hi, my name is Cameron Mitchell and I'm the CEO of Trademark Vision. You're listening to the best
1: podcast in the world, IP Fridays.
0: Hello and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more.
2: Welcome to episode 84 of IP Fridays. Today's interview guest is Scott Rothenberger of Barnes & Thornburg and he will be talking about patents and namely enablement, indefiniteness and the written description. But before we jump into the interview, I have some news for you. The USPTO has just published a report synthesizing public comments on an important question for innovators in a wide variety of industries. What are the appropriate boundaries of patent eligible subject matter? Between 2010 and 2014, four opinions issued by the. US Supreme Court, namely Bilski, Mayo, Marriott, and Alice, have all significantly affected the patent eligibility law and following these rulings, the USPTO has tried to solicit feedback from the industry, from patent professionals in the US. The easiest way to find this report is on the USPTO website on the President's blog where a short summary is posted. One short side note, the German Patent and Trademark Office just turned 140 years old on 1st of July 2017. Nominations for the European Inventor Award 2018 are now open. The deadline for submission is 16 October 2017. The award recognizes outstanding inventors from around the world, so no need to be a European citizen. So just go ahead and nominate your favorite inventor. And now let's jump into the interview with Scott Rothenberger.
0: Ralph, our guest today on IP Fridays is Barnes & Thornburg partner, Dr. Scott Rothenberger. Scott is a partner in the Minneapolis office of Barnes & Thornburg. As a member of the intellectual property department, Scott focuses his practice on all aspects of patent prosecution, licensing, and intellectual property litigation. Using his background in science, Scott prepares and prosecutes patent applications in the pharmaceutical, chemical, and biotechnology industries, specifically related to small molecules, nutraceuticals, various catalysts, fuel cells, nonwovens, films, surface modifications, business methods, software, mechanical devices, polymers, and medical devices. Scott earned his J.D. from the Franklin Pierce Law Center at the University of New Hampshire. He also earned a Ph.D. in Organic Chemistry from the University of New Hampshire in 1985, completed a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of South Carolina, completed a postdoctoral fellowship at the State University of New York at Stony Brook, where he also taught at the university level and obtained a B.S. in chemistry from Albright College in 1981. Welcome Scott to IP Fridays. Hi Ken, how are you? Good, doing well. So we have a number of topics to talk about today in the patent area. First I want to ask you Scott, how did you get into patent law since you have a doctorate and postdoctoral fellowship in organic chemistry?
1: I think I'm pretty typical like most patent attorneys. I didn't even know what a patent was when I got out of graduate school but I went in industry for about eight years. And in my very first project, my boss walked into my office and dropped off a stack of patents and said, read these, come back to me in a week and tell me how you're going to solve our problem. Mm-hmm. I sat down and I read those patents and I understood them. And uh, he said to me, you actually read those? And I said, yes. And he said, you understood them? I said, yes, that was my job. And it turned out I'd had a knack for it. It worked mm-hmm. with patent attorneys and Uh, Throughout about eight years in industry, um, I seemed to understand patents. They encouraged me to go to to law school, and so I went to law school. And I've been doing this now uh, as a patent attorney for 22 years.
0: What do you like most about your job, Scott?
1: The diversity of the projects. Uh, I've got clients that are mom and pop startups literally in a garage all the way to a fortune 10 company. Um, The science changes, the law changes, and the business aspects always change. Mm
0: -hmm. So, in in patent law, uh, there's several standards, I understand, that must be met. Uh, Novelty, non-obviousness, and then enablement, written description, and definiteness. What are the issues uh, with respect to enablement, written description, and
1: indefiniteness? Um, In general, a specification provides uh, the public a roadmap. It needs to provide someone with the ability to reproduce what is that is patented. If not, the applicant is not met its burden of patentability. So within the specification, there should be enough information to tell the reader all the details necessary to recreate what the invention is. Sometimes patents and their specifications fall short. Sometimes applicants do not provide enough detail to achieve what is required. I say most times that it is inadvertent, but sometimes it may be purposeful because they're trying to hide a, a trade secret or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll explain the statute briefly. The statute reads that the specification shall contain a written description of the invention and the manner and process of making and using it in such full, clear, concise, and exact terms as to enable any person skilled in the art to which it pertains or with which is most nearly connected to to make and use the same and shall set forth the best mode, which may be a topic for another day, that is contemplated by the inventor or joint inventor of carrying out the invention. The specification shall include conclude with one or more claims particularly pointing out and distinctly claiming the subject matter which the inventor or joint inventor regards as the invention. I uh, will focus on these issues today of the enablement, written description, and definiteness for the rest of our discussions.
0: Good. Now, Scott, let's, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about case law. I know there's lots of cases coming down every day that you have to you know, keep on top of. What case law do you consider important uh, in view of the issues surrounding written description, enablement, and definiteness?
1: Sure. We can talk about that. Uh, first, though, I want to just briefly mention that um, a lot of people talk about patents as being a monopoly, and they are. Uh, so, one of the important things about patent specifications is that when the monopoly runs out, meaning that the patent term runs out, the public then has the ability to make, use, sell, and offer to sell the invention contained within the patent itself. So that's why we have to have a standard where someone can go back later on and reproduce what's in that patent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the leading case right now is Nautilus v. Biosig Instruments. Um, and the Supreme Court uh, in the case uh, in 2014 set the standard where the term phrased used by the court in, in that the claim must have reasonable certainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nautilus uh, was an invention uh, for workout equipment where the individual held electrodes in the individual's hands. Essentially, the person formed a conduit with the electrodes so that a current would pass through the electrodes and the individual, and that current could be monitored and relayed to their physical performance via their heart rate. Uh, The dispute between the parties focused on the phrase, quote unquote, space relationship, referring to the spacing between the two electrodes, and they were claiming that was indefinite. There wasn't an indication of how close or far apart the electrodes should be or could be in the specification. However, reading between the lines, it is reasonable to assume that the spaced relationship quote unquote, would vary from the hands being together to as far as a person could extend their hands. Otherwise, the electrodes would not work, and neither would the invention. The court found that the term, in view of the specification, met the standard of quote unquote, reasonable cer- certainty that someone skilled in the art would understand that the electrodes had to be held by both hands at a reasonable distance apart from one another. In other words, as long as someone could hold them in their hands, it was reasonable to understand the phrase. So, reasonable
0: certainty—that's that's the key uh, words here that we should look into. Yes. What exactly does reasonable certainty mean? That's a good question.
1: Uh, courts and patent practitioners are still trying to define that. Mm-hmm. Um, as an example, in a case uh, Tiva Pharmaceutical USA versus Sandoz, it's a federal circuit decision. In 2015 that involved U.S. patent number 5800808. Uh, The case had gone from the district court to the Court of Appeals of the Federal Circuit to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court then remanded the case back down to the CAFC to deal with claim interpretation. The issue focused on the interpretation of quote-unquote molecular weight for a compound referred to as copolymer 1. Copolymer 1 was a mixture of polypeptides composed of alanine, glutamic acid, lysine, and tyrosine. Now, molecular weight is associated with polymers or larger molecules, such as proteins. The term was not defined in the specification. It is a term that's known in the art, but there are different ways to define the term and measure the actual molecular weight. It is a rather generic term. So, molecular weight can have at least four different definitions there is the weight average molecular weight, that's M sub W, number average molecular weight, that's capital N, small n, Z average molecular weight, that's a capital M, small z, and peak molecular weight, capital M, small p, if Mm -hmm. you're looking at any kind of research articles. Yes. Now, if you can envision this, the differences between these different types of molecular weights, if you think about a bell-shaped curve, Yes. generally, The MN is on the lower end of the curve. The MP is at the very peak, obviously, because it's the molecular peak of the curve. MW resides slightly down the forefront of the curve, and MZ is the furthest along the curve to the right-hand side. Now, nowhere in the specification did it define how the molecular weight was calculated. And obviously, these different parameters give different molecular weights. Thus, the Federal Circuit found that a skilled artisan would not be reasonably certain in light of the entire record as to which type of molecular weight was intended. So there was uncertainty here.
0: Yeah. Now, can you give us some examples of how the issues of enablement, uh, written description, and indefiniteness have played out in recent case law, perhaps where a term is known in the art uh, but not defined well in the specification?
1: Sure. I have a decent example. Uh, the example is Dow Chemical Company versus Nova Chemical Corporation
2: mm-hmm.
1: and by the Fed Circuit in 2002. It involved patent numbers 5847053 and 6111023. Here, the claims focused on an ethylene polymer that was characterized by a physical property. There is nothing wrong or incorrect about characterizing a physical property of a material for patentability purposes when that material is novel and non-obvious, I meaning it's never been made before. Okay. Um, however, there was a physical property noted in the claims as, quote, a slope of strain hardening coefficient greater than or equal to 1.3. The Federal Circuit decision provided that the slope of strain hardening coefficient was a parameter devised by the inventor and it was not previously used in the art. The 053 patent explained how to calculate this parameter based on, quote, slope of strain hardening, quote, and the melt index of a polymer. And both strain hardening and melt index were well-known properties of polymer compositions. However, the indefiniteness problem arose because there were at least four different procedures for measuring the slope of the strain hardening, each of which could produce a different value. The court reviewed the intrinsic record and determined that none of the claims, the specification, or even the prosecution history discussed how to measure the slope. No guidance was provided as to which mes- method should be used or indicated that the four methods in evidence represented all possible methods of determining the slope of the strain hardening. The Federal Circuit applied the Nautilus standard and held that the existence of the multiple methods that could lead to different results and the absence of guidance in the patent or prosecution history as to which methods should be used rendered the claims indefinite because they failed to inform with reasonable certainty those skilled in the art about the scope of the invention.
0: Very interesting, Scott. Now let's, let's look at some other things here. Do you have another example, perhaps, uh, where there was an issue with how to actually conduct a measurement uh, where there is a method, uh, that is well known in the art, uh, but perhaps
1: not applied. Sure, uh, the case that uh, I like is Honeywell International versus the U.S. International Trade Commission. Mm-hmm. Um, and this What's is the, the site on that. This is at the Federal Circuit level, two thousand and three, mm-hmm. and the patent involved is patent five six three zero nine seven
0: six. Now, just a question, uh, Scott. Mm-hmm. If, if our listeners are not familiar with looking up patents, I know many of them are, but if
1: they mm-hmm. wanted to find that patent online, is there an easy way to do that? Sure. You can easily go on the internet to www.uspto.gov mm-hmm. and it's very user friendly. You can scroll down to patents and do a patent search okay. and you, you put the uh, patent number in the search and up pops the patent. Excellent. So Going back to Honeywell. Honeywell was unique in that the dispute was not so much over the meaning of the term at issue, which was melting point elevation, as the issue was over how to determine its value. The dispute centered on how to measure melting point elevation. The claims were drawn to methods of making polyethylene terephthalate PET, as people know out there in the world. Yes. And it was a yarn. And the one step in the process results in a yarn with the MPE within certain ranges. The specification defined the melting point elevation, MPE, and described an example test procedure. The specification did not, however, describe how to prepare the PET yarn specimen for DSC analysis, that's differential scanning calorimetry, Mm -hmm. or DSC as an analytical technique in which the difference in the amount of heat required to increase the temperature of a sample and reference is measured. At the time of filing, there were four different ways to prepare a sample for the DSC testing and the different methods yielded varying results. In this case, only one method, the quote-unquote ball method, was shown to produce the MPE values for the accused yarns that fell within the claimed ranges. The Federal Circuit determined that there were three possible constructions with respect to sample preparation based on the ball method, any one method, or all methods. The court could not adopt the Ball method because the Ball method actually used in the uh, testing appeared only in proprietary Honeywell documents. That means that there was no knowledge outside of Honeywell. A method outside the bounds of the claims, the written description, and the prosecution history in any written publication would be an inappropriate basis for claim construction. Mm-hmm. The court could not choose a construction based on any one method because the various methods yielded greatly different results. The court could not adopt all methods basis because Honeywell admitted that such a construction would render the invention inoperable. Not only is it important for claims to inform persons of ordinary skill, of their scope, with reasonable certainty, the claims must also enable courts to determine whether novelty and the invention are genuine. Mm-hmm. Uh, because a court could not find support for any conceivable construction of the term, especially in view of the non-public Honeywell test parameters, the claims were found to be indefinite.
0: Interesting, Scott. Let's take another look at the, the facts and, and, and um, you know, where courts are coming down on these issues. Might you also have a case that would be helpful for our listeners uh, that talks about how actual test conditions are performed Even if not specifically stated in the specification, where a person having ordinary skill in the art uh, would know how to undertake such an analytic test.
1: Sure, there's a a pretty darn good case on this point. Yeah, the case that comes to mind is Wellman Inc. versus Eastman Chemical Company. That's again the Federal Circuit in 2011, and involved U.S. Patent Number Seven One Two Nine Three One Seven. Okay. The Wellman patent had a claim that recited a polyethylene terephthalate resin, another PET, having a heating crystallization exotherm peak temperature of more than about 140 degrees Celsius at a heating rate of 10 degrees Celsius per minute as measured by DSE, differential scanning calorimetry. And DSE, again, is a fairly standard technique known in the art. The issue focused on how one measured the result by differential scanning calorimetry. The district court granted summary judgment of indefiniteness because the patent did not disclose sample conditions and test parameters for obtaining consistent DSC measurements. The Federal Circuit disagreed, holding that a person of ordinary skill in the art would know how to perform the DSC test. The record reflected an international standard for performing such tests that enforced sample preparation procedures and testing protocols that would lead a person of ordinary skill to be able to perform the test consistently. Mm -hmm. The court held that the patent need not specifically cite or incorporate the standard since it was publicly available, whereas in Honeywell, the only information that would have aided a person of ordinary skill in the art in the understanding and the meaning of the claim was not publicly available. In Wellman, an industry standard was available to aid in the understanding with reasonable certainty the meaning of the claim. Additionally, this specification provided details about how to run the test procedure and had eight figures showing test results. Probably even more importantly though, DSC has been known and used widely in the polymer slash chemistry area for over 60 years. A person having ordinary skill in the art would know how to run and analyze a DSC scan and interpret such results, at least in my opinion. This could be contrasted with new analytical procedures that are not yet widely accepted by a scientific community such a test that is not yet widely accepted could bring uncertainty into written description enablement and or definiteness in such a case the tests the conditions and how to interpret the results must be discussed in detail in the specification so that a person having an ordinary skill in the art could reproduce the results
0: so scott we've certainly covered a lot of ground here a lot of technical things and how do we wrap our our hands around strategies could you give our listeners from your perspective, strategies that that you could provide or recommend uh, uh, that can be implemented to meet the requirements for written description, uh, enablement, and definiteness?
1: Sure. I can provide some practice tips. Mm -hmm. Um, First thing is consider when you're drafting a specification, what is reasonable certainty, at least in your mind and the inventor's mind, for a, a given test, a physical parameter, a measurement, or whatever it is you're trying to capture? right you really need to define it explicitly you need to be creative but you can you can be creative but you need to define it carefully what i like to do is i ask the inventors whether the test is well known and use a standard if there is one the standard could be from a well-known paper a textbook or an international standard such as an astm method simply identify the standard refer to the reference and incorporate it into the specification by name number or however it is referred to in the industry. Okay. If the test is not known, then be very precise in how the test or physical property is performed or identified, and I do mean be precise. For example, at what temperature is the test conducted? Is it done in the dark or the light, perhaps? Is humidity important? Is there a length of time that has to be considered? Is there a tension if there is a pressure applied? What's the instrumentation used? Is there software used? If it is, identify it. Is the machine calibrated? If so, how is it calibrated? Etc. Any conditions that could impact the measurement should be identified in detailed as to how to control such conditions. When you're drafting the application, I would say define your terms clearly and definitively in the specification. A corollary to this is to use precision when using those terms in your claims. If the term is not defined in the specification, extrinsic, extrinsic evidence will be considered. Then the question becomes whether the term is well recognized in the art or not. If not, you will end up in a battle of the experts in litigation to delineate what the term actually means. I believe you want to avoid this,
0: if at all possible. For sure. Scott, thanks so much for joining us today on IP Fridays. This has been
1: thoroughly fascinating. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Have a good day.
0: That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting IPFridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at IPFridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast, or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.